Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Angel of Words podcast, where your stories are heard. I am your host, Angel of Words. And before we get started, don't forget to punch that like button, subscribe. Uh, you can follow us on all podcast platforms. Visit the website, www.aowent.com. And if you want to leave a donation to the Angel of Words podcast, it is cash app a-o-w-n-y-c now today we are going international with career diplomat and director of human rights in guatemala miss maria jose del Adio. hello miss maria jose thank you for joining us today on the angel of words podcast pleasure to have you pleasure being here with you thank you for the invitation of course, of course. And Maria Jose, before we get started, I, I never do this, but I want to start with a story. And the first story, these are quick stories. You know, I never got a chance to thank you, first and foremost, for helping John, our friend John, uh, throughout his crisis when he was hit by the uh, uh, the tuk-tuk out in Thailand. And John is uh, episode number three, the coma survivor, traumatic injury survivor, for those that haven't seen that podcast, is one of the most heartwarming, heart-wrenching, and uh, probably the best human interest story podcast I have to date. Uh, and, you know, Maria Jose, who I've mentioned on Words Behind the Angel, actually, uh, has, you know, was part of that situation. I reached out to her and then, she, you know, she got the ball rolling to get John uh, back safely from home from Thailand. And uh, thank you for that. And number two, this lady here uh, is one of the ladies that I've met back in my past who uh, helped me with my emotional maturity. And that oh, really? I mean that, yes, uh, and that I mean that, you know, hanging out with her and, and you know, in our friendship, you know, in our in our little group helped me expand uh, my horizons and see the world from a different perspective. And I'll never forget that event at the at the United Nations that you invited us to. That was absolutely sensational. And, uh, you know, I'll thank you for that. And I just want to start the podcast with that. So thank you. And uh, now we're going to get down to business. Um, Miss Maria Jose, what made you want to go into politics, become a diplomat, and do work in international affairs, girl? (laughs) Well, I would have to rewind many decades. Um, My dad died when I was 14, so I had to work and study at the same time to graduate from high school. And I couldn't have done it without my mom and my aunts and uncles cheering me on. But I know that it was a challenge. And from from the very start, I always felt different to everyone else in my class because it was a, a very expensive private school. And let's say that I wasn't part of the norm. So... I was exposed to life and the challenges that you might have, those curved balls that life throws at you, right? So um, initially, I wanted to be a doctor. Oh, interesting. Yep. I wanted to be a doctor. And uh, coincidentally, both my, my grandparents got sick, so we would go to the doctor often. And I would always say with very, a lot of enthusiasm that I was considering going into med school to which every single male doctor would respond, but you want to get married, you would want to have kids. You're saying that you would like uh, cardiology, neurology, those are very demanding, challenging specializations. 
um, you wouldn't be able to, you know, to pursue your life as a woman as well, getting married, having kids. And I heard this so many times that eventually I just scratched off the possibility of being a doctor. No regrets, but just to say that international relations and, poli and, and political science weren't at the forefront when I was younger. Um, so my mom knew that I needed a higher education to be um, successful in life. And she was very um, emphatic from the very beginning that um, there was no such thing as a sabbatical for me, that as soon as I graduated from high school, I needed to, to go into, to, you know, get my college degree. And um, at recess in school, I told my friends, give me all the paperwork and the research that you've done, because for my friends, you know, who would pay their tuition, to which school they could go, that wasn't a limitation or a consideration for them. So they went to every single campus in Guatemala. So they gave me all their paperwork. And literally, during recess, what I did was, not, not interested, maybe I could be good at this. And that's how I piled up all the paperwork. And uh, by the end of the day, my mom picked me up and I told her, you know, I want to study international relations. And she's like, what's that? I'm like, I don't know, but sounds interesting. <laughs> so we went to the university that I ended up studying. And for our surprise, that was the last day to sign up to do the exam to enter for the next um, study year. Um, I got approved. I went through all the interviews. Everyone in my family was a bit doubtful. First, that I would get in. And second, that I would be able to pay for college because it was one of the most expensive colleges in Guatemala. But I don't regret it. I had a very round out, you know, preparation. And the rest of it, would I would say it, it's history. I studied international relations and I studied um, political science as well. Down the road, I the interest of being a diplomat got sparked. And I started off doing an internship in the ministry. I worked, uh, it, it was a no, non-paid internship for seven so months. So is this like the, the Ministry of Defense or like the... The, the, the Ministry the, of Foreign Affairs. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Okay. Yeah. So I was a, an unpaid intern for seven months. And um, again, since when I was middle school, I was working and studying at the same time. So for my mom, it was really a challenge to lose me as her partner working in sales. And um, she kept on telling me if they don't offer, you know, a concrete work contract for you next month, we're done. Like, you know, the gas the food, this and that. But miraculously, here I am almost 18 years later. Wow. Now let's talk about that, because from 2006 to 2017, you served at the, the, the uh, permanent mission of Guatemala at the United Nations. And, uh, you know, could you tell the audience, like, you know, what were some of your duties? Because that sounds, uh, uh, you know, very, very interesting. I'll be honest, you know, you're, you're uh, 
putting us in this, you, you, you're about to send us into a world that I never thought I would know about because I never used to ask you these questions, really. I didn't want to get, <laughs> I, you know, I never want to talk about, you know, you know, when you're hanging out socially, you never want to discuss, you know, work, you know, work. it's like, let's just, you know, hang out and forget about all that. But, you know, what were some of your duties there at the, uh, you know, at, at the United Nations? Have you seen those talk shows where you have someone that has four hats and they're rotating them at the same time? Yes. That was me. Wow. Um, as a small country, we have the challenge that our team is not as big as other countries um, in international organizations. So let's say on average, you might have, let's say, France, the United States, Germany might have at any given moment 20 to 30 people covering the work of the UN in New York. We were six. But the advantage of that, because you always have to see what's the positive side to it, you might not have the possibility of becoming a very specialized expert on a given topic, but you have enough knowledge to cover everything. And that was pretty much my, my experience. I was the most junior uh, person in the team when I, when I got appointed to New York back in 2006. How do you feel when that happened? Oh, my God. It was amazing because when I was in the university at some <laughs> yeah. point, we had a professor that asked us to dream, dream big, and to make a list of the ideal places where we wanted to work at some point in our career. And my number one you know, preference was the UN in New York. So out of the blue, an ambassador, the current ambassador at the time, in New York, came to Guatemala, and there was a vacant post, and he had like very specific, specific requirements for the person that he needed to get appointed. And when he said this to the other person that was speaking with him, he laughed in his face. He's like, you're saying this to me as if you're giving me requirements, and I'm going to be able to give you a list from which you can interview and choose. That's not the case. There's only one person that fulfills their requirements, and for your advantage, she's fluent in English, and she is single, so I hope she says yes. So I was called to this office, and the minute I saw the ambassador, I suspected what it was for. And after 45 minutes of grueling questions, just to make sure if it was true that I knew what the other person said that I knew, yeah. the person said, well, you, you pretty much suspect at this point why this conversation is taking place. I want you to come to become part of my team in New York. I'm like, sure thing. When do I pass? But at the time I was 22, almost 23. So he looked at me and he's like, aren't you supposed to ask this with your parents, consultant? I'm like, no, nah, I'll let them know about my decision. <laughs> Why, like you were me? a baby when you started. Wow, yeah. 23 years old. Man. Yeah, I, I turned 23 already in New York. Yeah. Wow. Fearless. So and you were like, let's do it. Yeah. At the beginning, my primary responsibility, to put it in layman terms, let's say I was a campaign manager. Like there's different um, elections, contested elections within the United Nations. And every single country has a person that its title is election officer. So in essence, this person has to 
uh, follow every single campaign in the UN and lobby with the remaining member states whenever you have a candidacy of your country to convince everyone else to vote for you. So throughout my 11 years in New York, I was always the election officer. Just on, on the political front, my portfolio would change. So throughout the years, I covered migration, development, human rights. Um, Guatemala became for the first time member of the Security Council uh, back in 2012-2013. So during those two years, I would cover West Africa. So everything related to the peacekeeping missions that the UN had at the time in some of those countries, sanctions committees, uh, resolution of conflicts in Africa. So of course, that in itself was mind-blowing because Guatemala is Again, a small country from, from Central America. And at the time, the only embassy that we had in the African continent was Egypt. So I didn't really have, let's say, intelligence brought to me from my embassies posted in those countries. It, it was pretty much you on your own, doing your own research. And, um, of course, being backed up with people from capital that were doing the exact same thing. Um, in contrast to, let's say, bigger countries that pretty much have embassies in more than 100 countries around the world, those embassies feed off for them information that they need for these ongoing political discussions. Wow. So, and so, because I'm thinking, okay, so now you're you're dealing with West Africa. I'm thinking the movie Blood Diamond. I'm thinking, you know, all, you know, African warlords. Like you gotta, you know, you're sitting, you know, in these roundtable discussions, trying to come up with policies to try to create some peace over there. Like, how do those talks go about? Like, how intense are those talks? Like, with, with, you know, with, 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 with African nations. Well, more than being discussions with the African nations in themselves, although you do have a space with the concerning countries for them to indicate their priorities, what are their current challenges, more so the discussion is amongst the 15 members of the Security Council. But it is quite interesting to see the internal dynamics that are not made to the public if you don't follow the council. And it's interesting that you say Blood Diamond because part of the sanctions committee, there's an aspect to it. Yes, the exploitation of natural resources and, you know, um, individuals that are blacklisted and, you know, uh, the freezing of their assets if they have accounts abroad, um, coordinations with Interpol in case they travel and if they, they, they are registered with their name and they're in, in the blacklist. You know, at any given moment, the authorities of that given airport have to arrest them. So to a certain extent, yes, it it, it almost feels like you're part of a movie, if you want to call it. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's very it's very interesting. It's um, rewarding in the sense that this is not something that is open to all the membership of the U.N. It's only for the given 15 members at the time. And um, I was able to really take advantage of that experience. We coincided at some point with South Africa, which is a, a very big and influential country in the continent of Africa. And um, we worked as well with our colleagues of Senegal, which was really interesting and rewarding as well, not only as a Francophone country, but also 
they would bring into the conversation the importance of the sub-regional uh, organizations that the, the continent of Africa has. And um, also, it was really interesting to see the input of language, because Portugal was in the council with us the first year, and I remember there was a coup d'etat of Guinea-Bissau. And there is a commission of the Lusophone countries. So you would have this dynamic of what prevails, the African Union, the West African Economical Commission, or the Lusophone countries. And you would see the dynamics. And at least for a Latin American country, I was like, wow, this doesn't only happen in our side of the world. Because we yeah, have... No, no, I say everybody has a different agenda. That's crazy, man. Yeah, yeah, no, and it, it, it's interesting to see because we, to yeah. a certain extent, we live that too in Latin America. You have the organization of the American states, but we have our Central American um, integration system as well. So all those push and pulls is fascinating. Could you describe the peacemaking process? I mean, I guess, you know, you because you guys were kind of successful, you know, I mean, things are, are getting better in, in that region. You were working in what, like Liberia and the Ivory Coast, right? Mainly yes, with those was, countries? Uh, primarily for, for my portfolio, it was, uh, yeah, Cote d'Ivoire, um, Liberia, and Sierra Leona. All three countries um, were going somewhat through the same process in the sense that um, the UN was gearing up into feeding the capacity building of either the armed forces or the civilian police or the judiciary branch of these respective countries and downsizing the size of the contingent of the peacekeeping operation. And Guatemala is a troop contributing um, country. Um, primarily, we've offered troops in Haiti and in Congo. So we we had like firsthand experience of how it goes on the ground in a peacekeeping operation. And in that sense, it was really rewarding to, to be able to be part of that process where we see the downsizing because the intent from the get-go is the UN comes when there's an, a situation that threatens international peace and security but there's no intent to stay there forever. At some point, you would want for these countries where there's been a strengthening of their own institutions, and to put it in layman terms, you take off those training wheels and let them go on their own, right? So there should be an, uh, a transition, an order transition from peacemaking to peacekeeping to peace building, and then something of relief to development, long-term development. Who chooses their leaders? Do you guys get in, in, in that those same conversations? Like, do you choose to remove leaders? No. Or is that some, no, okay, so that no. you don't get involved no. in that, that, no. that aspect. You discuss okay. more matters in, re, in relation to how the institutions are working and where you might be able to assist. How does the sanction get levied, man? That's like, I always want to know what that process is like, you know, when you decide now nah, we got to shut them down, man, They're going, <laughs> things are not going well over there. Well, like, what's that process like? Unfortunately, I wasn't, I wasn't there in the council when sanctions were imposed. I was more involved when the sanctions are relieved because the mm. imminent threat has 
feet. Um, but there, there is a lot of coordination throughout the system. You have a group of experts that do go on the ground and supervise how things are. And they're mandated to report on every three months um, to see how things are going. And part of the process as well is hand-in-hand, hand, yes, there are sanctions, but as well there's another type of assistance to make sure that you have adequate institutions functioning in a democratic country. Okay, so you do have field operatives going out there to make, you know, to actually do the dirty work. There's a group of experts, yes, that they periodically report on how things are going. Wow. You don't go in online. Oh, well, that's a good thing, you know. <laughs> that's why they call it diplomacy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, uh, could you describe some of the humanitarian efforts, though, that you did in West Africa? Because that's very interesting to me. You know, I'm, I, I like to think of myself as a humanitarian and help people as much as I can. And it's great that you're doing it on an international level. Well, um, when it comes to the humanitarian assistance, I would cover it more broadly in the thematic discussion. Um, gotcha. During the time that I was covering um, humanitarian assistance, several things occurred. For instance, the earthquake in Haiti. I, I was covering humanitarian assistance at the time. And of course, you have first the immediate reaction. In that case, it was an earthquake. So um, assistance that has to go hand in hand with the coordination of the affected state. So primarily first it's the state that says, what do I need? And usually it's, you know, clean water, um, provide medical assistance, um, have to do a survey of what your population, because let's say if you have, young babies? Do you need milk? Do you need diapers? If you have women that are pregnant or they're close to their due date and eventually they'll need medical assistance to deliver their, their baby. Um, in the case of Haiti, there were a lot of uh, people that became amputees because oh, wow. of how the constructions fell on them. So you had the immediate trauma assistance to help them with, you know, the surgery required um, to, to cut off their limbs. But then in extension to that long term, the rehabilitation, if they were going to get prosthetics, um, consider if you're going to rebuild buildings, are they disability friendly? If not, how you're going to accommodate that in the reconstruction phase? Um, if there's need to evacuate people and send them somewhere else to give them the medical assistance that they require. Um, do they have enough food? If not, you need to get provisions of food. So all those discussions are not taken place by us. They're taken by the office that coordinates humanitarian assistance that as member states, there is a political discussion given when a situation like this arises to provide that political mandate that the UN needs to operate on the field. So unfortunately, I haven't been able to be on the ground when humanitarian assistance is provided. However, I was fortunate enough to travel to Tajikistan, uh, okay. to Fiji, and to Samoa to supervise what the UN does when it comes to reconstruction and development. And that was mind-blowing. It was really interesting to see 
Uh, one of the primary concerns is when you invest on a project, is this project um, community-led? Are you generating capacity at ground level? And is this project um, able to be replicated by the civilians? In order to not be at all times attached to an assistant that comes abroad. So you can have very diverse projects. There was a project of a community that um, they were primarily their their main sustenance was agriculture. So you know how can you help them mm-hmm. to have better crops, more sustainable use of their land? If it were women, for instance, in in Samoa, I remember we visited a village where um, they had give them, given them solar power panels. And then how these women started with small um, enterprises that would make them economically empowered and help other women to buy other solar panels mm-hmm. and keep on replicating that in the village. It was fascinating. Wow. You're really helping them cultivate like basically like a whole new lifestyle with the resources that you're sending. And then these are all various countries working in conjunction with one another, correct? Wow, that's fantastic, man. I had no idea it was such an intricate process. Now, um, in terms of like you working in elections, it's only in international elections. You're not doing anything in Guatemala domestically, correct? No, at the time, no. It, It was just strictly campaigns of candidatures of Guatemala appointed in relevant courts. For example, well, yes, the the most uh, important one for my career was the Security Council candidature for the term 2012-2013, but um, I handled the campaign for the Economic and Social Council on three different occasions that were successfully elected. And then you have candidatures that are of an expert nature of a certain individual, not a country candidature, that this person has to have like a long-standing mm-hmm. career on a specific field. So um, I assisted in the campaign of two indigenous um, gentlemen who ended up working in two different bodies that deal with indigenous people's rights. And then also a brilliant woman who worked in the Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And in her case, it was so inspiring because um, this woman, young woman, professional, um, fluent in English, and um, at the age of 15, she started progressively losing her eyesight. By the time she hit 25, she was completely blind. And this woman has been such an inspiration. Like we would go in and out of meetings, and she was completely independent, and she was living proof that given the right tools, anyone can accomplish anything in life and be an inspiration wherever they're at. So her campaign in particular really marked me in my life. And as the days progressed of me campaigning for her, I remember over the course of five days, we met with more than 83 countries. Like in essence, sit down here with me. Let me introduce my candidate. She's this, 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 this. We need your vote. In essence, that's what I would do. You have enough. You have enough hotel space for all those people, man. <laughs> no, but all of this would all of this would take place in the UN, oh, okay. The, okay. the UN um, uh, headquarters. 
the only person that would be actually mobilized to New York would be the can the candidate that you were campaigning for, so that we could do lobby with member states in New York. That place doesn't look that big. I grew up in New York my whole life. I always thought it was a small looking building, but it is bigger than what you really you think it is. You need to get a tour. I never got a tour, man. You never gave me one, you know? You never asked? <laughs> I know I should have. I was. I don't know what I was thinking. Maybe next time. <laughs> I wasn't time. thinking. <laughs> that would be great, man. Because, I mean, I used to see your pictures in the U. I'm like, yo, that's pretty cool. Does, does, that, does that have an Oculus, the UN? Like what do you an mean? Oculus? An Oculus like, like the know, one downtown? Yeah. Well, the, the General Assembly Hall, when you see the ceiling, it is circular in 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 form i wouldn't say that it's an oculus but yeah okay. it's it's majestic how did you feel when you first walked into that room man did you feel like you made it like wow i'm here this is crazy i think i found myself more than once maybe pinching myself to see if whatever <laughs> i was seeing is true yeah. and i do recall the very first year that i was there and i'm gonna mention this just because it's a historic moment that everyone has seen in the news at some point. You remember when uh, a given president was in the General Assembly and said, it smells like sulfur here? Yes, I do remember that. I was in the General Assembly that day. And I turned towards my immediate boss and I said, is this is actually happening? Can this be said here? He's like, it's the UN, anything can happen. I'm like, wow. And yes, at any given moment when I have to think of I'm guessing you're talking of, about Saddam Hussein, right? you're talking about? No. Oh, okay. It's from our okay. country, uh, our region. Oh, oh really? Oh, I don't know. I, I, I got to look that up. No. We're gonna, you got to look that up? Leave that, see, that, that's your homework, Mr. Uh, everyone that's listening right yeah, now. That's your I'm homework. Leaving, Figure I'm out leaving who said that. for you to do your research. <laughs> that's it. Go Google that, you know. <laughs> right now, we're talking to career diplomat, director of human rights out in Guatemala, Miss uh, Maria Jose del Aguila. Miss Maria Jose, there's a lot of things happening in my country that affect your country. And I'm talking about the detention centers out there in the, in the southern borders uh, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, a lot of families being displaced from one another. I don't like, I don't, you know, I don't like what's happening. I'm, you know, I'm reading a lot of reports of mistreatment. Uh, you know, do you folks over at the UN or, you know, your, uh, office itself, do you guys get involved in those, uh, United States affairs? Well, firstly in the UN, yes, there is a discussion on migration. Um, the first time that we were able to speak at this in New York was when we um, discussed the New York um, Declaration, which was, let's say, the stepping stone to discuss further the global compact on regular, secure, and orderly migration, which was then adopted in Morocco. Um, I wasn't able to follow those discussions, but I did um, follow the New York Declaration negotiation prior to me getting transferred to Geneva. And that was primarily one of the main interests from Latin American countries, to stress the need that uh, detention should only be used when uh, the greater, the superior interest of the child is taken into account. Um, after this, 
uh, full-fledged discussions over more than a year took place in New York. At the time, as I was in Geneva, so I wasn't able to follow it as closely as I would have wanted to. But I have to say, due to these challenges, many things have happened in my country, which is where I, I would be able to feel more comfortable of speaking about. Um, yeah. A certain specialization of institutions has to take place on how to further assist unaccompanied minors, which became a phenomenon in, in many countries in Central America. Increasingly so, misinformation led people to believe that if they were traveling accompanied by a minor, their entry into the U.S. was going to be expedited, which was not the case. And you had many identified cases where the children were traveling with people that were not even from their immediate family. Just wow. because due to desperation, people would think I'm willing to give my child to potentially a complete stranger just for the sake of them having a better future. Um, naively thinking that once they cross their bo the border, there's going to be a welcoming committee offering a bunch of opportunities, which we all know is not the case. So um, the current administration in Guatemala is really investing on spearheading opportunities and entrepreneurship for small scale businesses in order to educate people and inspire them that you don't have to leave your country in order to find a sustaining uh, lifeline. And um, we are uh, working in hand with our neighboring countries who have similar challenges, maybe not the exact same challenges, but similar challenges. And increasingly so, there's been an awareness raising on the linkage between migration and trafficking in person. There are many people that get deceived, that are asked for ridiculous amounts of money, promising them that they will arrive safely. And then uh, young women end up in, you know, traffic, trafficking uh, groups where they end up being victims of sexual violence, even prostitution. So um, it is a challenge. It remains a challenge. And we do welcome um, current efforts being made hand in hand with other countries in, in order to try to better educate people, become better at informing people on what is true, what is not. And um, unfortunately, of course, uh, the COVID pandemic has only exacerbated challenges that we've had longstanding. So a lot of people lost their jobs. One of the main um, issues that we've historically had in Guatemala is a good proportion of our population does not work in formal economy. It's informal type of work. So at any given moment when they have challenging times, they don't have a social protection system that's going to you know, hold their back or they're not going to have adequate access to um, a stipend or health services. So I am grateful that our current president is a doctor by profession. And coming into to the administration, he was fully aware of what are the challenges that we had. He actually took office 14 January. And the first case of COVID in Guatemala was registered two months later. So he was barely you know, getting familiarized with his ground and boom, we get hit with this. 
And one of the first things that were um, decided was to start um, creating temporary hospitals because we were fully aware that the current um, network of hospitals that we had was not going to be sufficient for a pandemic of this um, nature. Um, however, yes, um, migration instead of decreasing has in increased because of the pandemic. People are desperate and are looking for other opportunities. So um, once we started reopening um, businesses in Guatemala and that the quarantine and, you know, the curfews were let lessened up, um, the, you know, reactivation of the economy is a priority now precisely to provide opportunities for people to stay home and not think out of desperation that they need to go abroad. Now, do you have unemployment insurance in Guatemala? Like, you know, do you have like these social programs in place or is this something that you guys are working on right now in order like to try to, uh, detract people from migrating and, you know, make them stay, you know, in their own country? Various packages were spearheaded by the president precisely because of the COVID pandemic to alleviate somehow. So, for instance, um, we had what they called the school snack, if, if I can say it in English, although I'm certain that there's a most appropriate word to describe it. But let's say <laughs> as children would go to public schools, they yeah. would get fed while in school, their breakfast, their lunch. But of course, with the pandemic, children stopped going to school and they were getting school at home. So what was done in hand with associations of parents from those same schools, they would get a bag of goods to ensure that children at all times would be adequately fed. That was one of the, the packages that was given to alleviate. Then another one with formal businesses that had adequate registration of their employees. If because of the, the pandemic, they had to let go some of their personnel, there was an unemployment insurance to be given, I think for three or four consecutive months for a given amount of employees that this business had registered. Uh, also, there was a box provided for families. And this box had enough goods for, I think it was for two consecutive months for people that didn't have any other means um, or income. And then based on the electrical bill, if it was identified that it was small households, and then probably you can draw the line that it's, you know, people in poverty areas, poverty ridden areas, they would be given a cash bonus for three consecutive months to help them alleviate um, the struggles that they were having. And then other packages that were of a smaller scale were spearheaded. So let's say um, there was one done by the Ministry of Culture for artists, all type of artists, painters, sculptors, musicians, that if they're in the entertainment um, industry, if everything is closed up, they don't have jobs. So yeah, what are you, who are you going to entertain? A, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So they would get a bonus as well to alleviate them. That was a smaller scale um, type of package, but in full, I think it was 10, 14 different types of, of programs that were created precisely because of the pandemic. 
How's the tech space in Guatemala, Maria Jose? Because, you know, that is important in this ever moving forward, fast changing world, strictly built on technological advances, you know, from what it seems that we're moving towards in the future. You know, I mean, all those things play a major role. You know, if you don't have those resources, like, how are you going to be able to compete with, you know, with, with the, uh, you know, the, the I, I don't even know how to say the first rate countries, I guess you could say, you know, first world, for lack country, of a, yeah. first world first countries. World. Yes. That's what, that's what they're called. Yes. First world, you know, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> that has been a historic challenge. You know, there's been yeah. a long standing debate on increasing the tax um, revenue that we have, the tax revenue system that we have in the country, um, we haven't been able to make, make much progress on that. So, yes, unfortunately, the majority of the packages that were spearheaded last year, it's either through um, credit bonuses, and also there was a huge redistribution of how um, the executive branch is working. So, in essence, there was a very strict review of how the institutions work. And if it was possible for these institutions to work with less people, those changes were made in order to redirect a higher percentage of money in projects as opposed to in regular functioning of the government. So trying to make it leaner, more efficient, I think yeah, we're still in yeah. that. I think we're still in that review process. Quite frankly, um, I do think that it, it is necessary to once in a while stir the pot and have a, a more critic eye on how things are are being done and not perpetuate in you know this routine of this is how it works and it's always worked this way and let's leave it this way. Yes. But one of the primary things that should help to have better education system and a health system in Guatemala should be through um, more taxes being paid by those that are better off. But that's a debate for a different day. Yes, no. We're, we're... <laughs> I could talk to you for hours right now. <laughs> and it seems to be an issue all over the world, you know what I mean? Not just in Guatemala. <laughs> No, but you know, I, I, there's something that really worries me and I gotta, you know, I, you know, I don't, you know, it's hard for me to, to not discuss it because, you know, I have four sisters, uh, you know, I'm a big advocate for uh, gender equality and, you know, in, you know, in Central America, you know, I've read some really troubling stories, you know, about females who have gotten abortions and being mistreated violently by the general population or by their, by their local people. Like there was a story I read out of Guatemala that they, that they, they, they murdered a lady for having an abortion. Like, is this, is this something that you see in Guatemala? Is this something that that's an issue at all? Or, you know, with, with gender and, and, and dealing with the female species out there? You're going to have to send me that news because I did not hear about that case, yeah. but I can tell you um, in Guatemala, it is not legal. Um, to have an abortion unless it is a life-threatening situation for the mother or the child. Um, it is an ongoing debate, and it is a very divisive topic still. Um, Guatemala is pr 
primarily a Catholic and Christian country. There have been several um, efforts from civil society to press on matters that continue to be a taboo and shouldn't. Um, for instance, the debate on having comprehensive sexual education in public schools and in private schools. Um, there's one part of the population that says it is the prerogative of parents to um, take responsibility for um, sexual education of, of their children. But at least coming from my personal experience, that wasn't something that was spoken in the household. I didn't get that open conversation from my parents. So um, I do think that it's necessary to have comprehensive sexual education in schools. And in terms of gender equality and um, eradicating violence against women, it is a topic that needs to be discussed, that is being discussed. We've had recent cases where very young girls are being um, abused and um, raped. Sadly so, the majority of the time, the perpetrator is someone close to the household, even a relative. So that is an issue that needs to be addressed. And you might have people that say we need death penalty, we need um, chemical castration to, uh, to finally address this issue. I am not necessarily in favor of those two measures because I feel that they don't go at the core, which is to ensure gender equality through education. Because if you don't have the acknowledgement of everyone in a society that we are all equal and that we all deserve dignity and the respect for our human rights, we're not going anywhere. So for me, it, it is addressed through education and not through death penalty. I know and I respect people that think, well, if you have two or three people um, that uh, the sanction is death, then everyone else is going to learn. I defer. I don't necessarily think that that's the solution. So it is an ongoing problem, and um, the current administration has gone through a review of how things are done, and we identified that many institutions work in silos. I'm the one responsible of social rehabilitation, so I only do this. I'm in, in, in responsible for justice being made, so I only do this. So two mechanisms were made, one addressing specifically um, domestic violence and violence against women, and then the other one addressing specifically um, challenges of similar nature with children and adolescents. And in essence, what is attempted to do with this mechanism, and I'm saying attempted because it's relatively recent, they launched these two mechanisms maybe one, two months ago. But in essence, what they're trying to do is to have a one-stop shop. Like the call is being made, this violation has been done, this institution will help with the psychosocial rehabilitation of the person. If this victim needs medical assistance, this is being provided. If they need legal counseling, this is where it's being given. And um, the follow-up of the case by the judiciary branch is done in the same um, mechanism. Like it's a full circle assistance. Um, it was officially launched. It, it was announced like two months ago, but it was officially launched Precisely on Monday, because of International um, Women's Day. Women's Day, yeah. And in, in essence, it was launched on that day because it's a place where women can seek temporary um, refuge if 
they had to flee from their home because of the violence. Does so it I make it? it oh, no, no, no. I was going to say that because of it being a topic that is being discussed in different um, fora, I want to believe that change is close and that change will be made in my country. And when it comes to changing the mindset, I want to say the future is in good hands. I have two young nieces. One is 18. She's in her second year of university studying architecture. And the other one is 12 in middle school. And one day we were talking about discrimination against people that are from the LGBTI community. And for them, it was a non-issue. They're like, why shouldn't they have the same rights? Why shouldn't their rights be respected? Why should they be vulnerable and be victims of discrimination because of their sexual orientation? I'm like, wow, I did not think that this was the case. But yes, the future will be in good hands. Are you considered a renegade out there in Guatemala? Because, I mean, you know, when you were out here in New York, I never really considered you really, like, you really became a part Normal. of New York. Like, like yeah, like, you know, like, it's like, you would have never known that you didn't grow up here. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, maybe I'm considered an oddball. People okay. that haven't interacted with someone that has lived abroad, they don't know what to do with me once they know me. They don't know where to put me. Like, you know, it's, it's human nature that you tend to put labels on people. Yes. And then maybe many labels come to mind and they don't know what to do with me. Gotcha. I wouldn't say renegade, but yeah, an oddball, an outsider. Now, now do your directives come from Alejandro Giamate? The, uh, the the president of Guatemala does it come you know do do your do your directives come from him from from there the, from the president's department or Some does it specific instructions are okay. given directly from presidency others okay. are left to the uh, better judgment of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs because of the competency that we have on a certain matter and then on other aspects if there's a specialized institution that handles the matter. We are responsible of seeking for their opinion. And once they give it to us, we send the instructions for our people abroad in the international organization. Wow. Man, that, that sounds intense. And how it's many hats are you Yeah. <laughs> how many hats are you wearing now? Probably twice the amount of hats you were wearing back in New York, huh? It's interesting, but I have to say, yeah. Angel, I really feel blessed and privileged because. I started off in New York, then I was sent to Geneva, where it's really the specialized human rights um, headquarter of the UN. And then I came back to Guatemala as director of human rights. So on a daily basis, what I'm doing is supervising what they're doing in New York, what they're doing in Geneva, and I know what they're talking about. So it was like a full circle, me being able to see the other side of the coin, what happens in capital the coordination that you have to have with other institutions, the clearance that you might need from president or minister level. And um, my priority right now is to ensure coordination, coherence, wherever Guatemala is at, that we have the same message being delivered and prepping the next generation, because I know that I won't be here forever. So I currently have a, a, a couple of protégés that I'm grueling 
sometimes I see them and I see that their mind is no longer in registering because I'm bombarding <laughs> them with the information. But precisely, I know that the future must be left in good hands and it's my responsibility to do that knowledge transfer. Well, they have some big shoes to fill. Uh, let me tell you. you. Now, what was your time in Switzerland like? You know, like what were some of the biggest lessons you learned while you were out there? You know, in, in the mecca of diplomacy. You know, um, many things. Geneva ain't no New York. <laughs> oh, New York is the city that never sleeps. Yeah. Geneva, everything closes at seven p.m. Nothing or almost nothing is open on Sundays. But there are several lessons to be learned from their lifestyle. They stem from the idea that everyone has their right to leisure and rest. So you shouldn't have things running 24-7 because then you have people that are being overworked. Um, so I learned to be more efficient in my time management in Geneva because I no longer had everything operating 24-7. So that mm. was a life lesson for me of being yeah. a, a more cognizant of how I administer my time. And then when it comes to my work, it was fascinating. I learned so much because primarily in New York, you work, you work and you discuss topics, uh, establishing standards, guidelines of how the, the world should be. But in Geneva, you receive the straightforward scrutiny of civil society from your country and you are responsible for giving them answers of things that they raise as concerns. So at all times, the light is on you. So that was um, a very interesting experience. It made me appreciate how much we've done, but also to be more cognizant of how much we remain struggle and that we need to work on. Did they screw you? No, go ahead, Anne. No, gender equality is one of the issues. Education is another issue. Fight against racism and discrimination. What about crime? Well, crime is not discussed so much in uh, Geneva. The primary um, place where this is discussed is in Vienna. Because in Vienna, you discuss uh, drugs, trafficking in persons, Gotcha. Uh, crime prevention, all mm. of this is discussed in Vienna. And that is one of the posts that, unfortunately, I haven't been able to have. But who knows? Maybe in the future I'll be able to be posted in Vienna and see this firsthand. And does everyone that, you know, I mean, is everyone like you that is so knowledgeable, so uh, engaged and 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 in wanting to see a change in the world and in each other's countries? Is that like a personality trait that you have to have in order to be a diplomat? Yes, and a percentage of craziness as well. (laughs) You're taking on the responsibilities of the whole entire universe. (laughs) I think think there are are certain traits that um, become the common denominator for a multilateral um, diplomat. Um, you have to have the ability of being on the go at any given moment, be exposed to cultures that are completely different than yours, being able to communicate with someone whose 
first language is not the one that you speak and you're both speaking a different language and making sure that you're delivering the message with the intent that you wanted it to. And the cultural sensitivity too. Yeah. Because there's something, certain mannerisms I could, I would imagine you can't make because it's totally disrespectful to a person in that country. They don't do that. You know, it's, it's not the status yeah. quo where they're from. Yeah. You become very, very sensitive to being culturally appropriate, uh, to being respectful to different cultures, and yet not letting those differences impede you from communicating and reaching consensus on topics that are relevant for both parties. Nice. What's it like not paying taxes, you know? <laughs> well, that only happens in, that? Uh, yeah, yeah. in New York. In a, that oh, that's only in New York? Um, yeah. But the reason behind it is because we're ta- paying taxes back at home. So Got it's just, you. Be, you know, to avoid you paying taxes double. Gotcha. And then in Geneva, we were exempt for certain top uh, items. It wasn't for every single purchase that you would make. Um, and of course, now I'm back home, so I'm paying taxes in Guatemala. Oh, well, we hope you are, you know. <laughs> you, you got a lot of programs you got to run, baby. You got to pay those taxes, you know. <laughs> True. Well, Miss Maria Jose del Aguila, we have reached the point of the podcast where it's time to play Five Words with Angel. Maria Jose, on five words with Angel, I'm going to give you a word, phrase, or a question. And you're going to give me the first thought that comes to your head. The first word that comes to your head. But a lot of my uh, people on the podcast, you know, they go with a whole sentence paragraph. So just feel free. Whatever comes to your head, first word Are you word sure you want to know what comes through my head? <laughs> well, I'm not going to give you anything crazy, man. I know who I'm talking to today. So, you know. <laughs> and right now we're talking to uh, Miss uh, Maria Jose del Aguila, the career diplomat from Guatemala, director of human rights. Now, the first word on five words with Angel, Miss Maria Jose, is... Guatemala. Country of trees. The internal springtime country. Really? That's what it is? I want to go to the eternal springtime. (laughs) No, really. It's spring year round, basically. And the origin of the word in Nahuatl is area of trees. Abundant trees. Oh, no, we got to do some marketing now, man. Forget about it. Everybody go visit Guatemala for real. Springtime all day. I'll sign up for that any day of my life. (laughs) I get to be fly every day. Oh, no, I'm with it. (laughs) The second word is one of my favorites. Papusas. What? Papusas. 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 Excuse me. Papusas. (laughs) What? Delicious. Complicated to make, but you eat them easily. Oh, they're not from Guatemala; they're from El Salvador, but they're delicious. Yeah, I know, but it's like a Central American thing, right? Like every, I guess every Central American has their own variation. Not necessarily in Guatemala. People have learned to do them, and restaurants that serve pupusas, there are a very um, okay popular um, dish. But they're not from Guatemala. But oddly so, my my young niece knows how to do them. So one day you have her there yeah. with her tongue out, trying to get them perfectly shaped. <laughs> <laughs> so it, I've seen the process firsthand, man. It's not easy. So it is indigenous to El Salvador. That's good to know. Yes, I thought it primarily, was a, yes. more of a Central American situation. Oh, all right, cool. Now the third word is bachata music. 
Um, a very interesting dance. Not everyone feels comfortable dancing it. I have a lot of fun seeing people dance it. I prefer dancing salsa or merengue. And from my years in Geneva, now I've gotten recently acquainted with kizomba, and I want to get better at it. Ooh, kizomba. I got to look that up. I want to know what you that's about. You have to look it up. It's Angolan. In essence, consider salsa and bachata had a baby, and it's a sensual African dance. Keep that in mind. Ooh, that sounds like a lot of fun now that the world's opening up slowly but surely. The fourth word is a oldie but a goodie. Gonzalez and Gonzalez. <laughs> <laughs> I knew You're I got a smile out of you there. <laughs> you You're so revealing yourself. You I, I just said I just said it. <laughs> we we didn't have to get into details about what it was. You could have just gave me one Historic word. Historic venue in New York if you want to learn salsa and meet interesting characters that can become close friends through dance and appreciation of live music beautiful there you go guys she, she's she uh is marketing for gonzalez and gonzalez i i think they open back up too so that's cool now the last the you last word on five. Send me a photo. Oh yeah, I definitely will. Don't worry. If I ever end up there, I don't know. I'm working too hard nowadays trying trying to get this podcast uh, moving and grooving all over the world. But you know, if I ever do end up there, I will definitely first thing I'll do is send you a video. That's for sure. Perfect. All right. Now the fifth word is was a phrase. The number one rule of diplomacy. In Don't your do eyes, to others, what you wouldn't want to be done to your country. Mm. Don't do to others what you wouldn't want to be done to your country. That is extremely, extremely poignant point. Uh, I suggest everybody take that little bit of wisdom with you before, you know, <laughs> while you're listening to the podcast. Now, Miss Maria Jose, talking about wisdom. Do you have some words of wisdom for any little boy, little girl, anybody in, you know, in middle school, high school, even right now as a young adult that might be considering a career in international affairs? What do you have to say to them? Dream big. The borders in your country are not barriers for your accomplishments. Wow. Wow. And that's it. That's mic drop in situation. Where could we? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I don't know. You're, you're, you're a diplomat. So this is a different type of podcast. Uh, you know, we're not going to do all the social media stuff. <laughs> You've been privy to Maria Jose del Aguila. If you ever bump into her, you know what she looks like. You know, <laughs> I'm sure that her information needs to stay private. This is a woman uh, that is, uh, you know, running a whole nation. Now, you know, one more question, actually. When are you going to become president of Guatemala? You, would you ever run? It's one term, right? From what I hear, it's one term you get. Yes, you can't you can't get reelected with the current legislation in Guatemala. You can't mm -hmm. get reelected. You serve for four years. I've always projected myself as a career diplomat that would be willing, able, and privileged to represent her country abroad. I've never envisioned myself in a political career, and yet I wouldn't just guard the possibility if it presents itself but i'm not actively pursuing a political career at the moment 
Who well, knows? Uh, we haven't had yeah, a female president. You know, president. every single politician that's ever become president has said the same thing at some point <laughs> in his career. So <laughs> I'll take that with a grain of salt. That was Maria Jose del Aguila all the way from Guatemala joining us. Are you in Guatemala City right now? I am in Guatemala City. All right, all the way in Guatemala City, Guatemala, career uh, diplomat, director of human rights out there in uh, Guatemala. Thank you so much for joining us on the Angel of Words podcast. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Of course. And everyone... Don't forget to subscribe. Click on that notification bell. You could also uh, find us on all the podcast platforms. If you want to see my social media at Angel of Words ENT, don't forget to visit the website and get all the merchants dice that's on there at www.aowent.com. Want to leave a donation? It's Cash App AOWNYC. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll talk to you later. <laughs>